There is something about Benjamin, isn't there? If we're honest this morning, some of us would even have to admit that at times, uh, Benjamin controls us, doesn't he? In fact, most of us, if we're really honest, would have to say that Benjamin controls us at some level. Benjamin controls and undermines a lot of marriages. In fact, Gallup did a poll recently that showed that 56% of divorces come as a result of money matters. The uh, Center for Marital and Family Studies at the University of Denver did a study, and in their study they discovered that it doesn't matter how much money you make or how little money you make, it doesn't matter how long you've been married, they found that in every segment the number one point of conflict for marriages was money. So I think it's important this morning that we take a couple of minutes and talk about this topic as we can uh, continue our series, Ignite. Now, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks or you're joining us for the first time today, we've uh, been in a series of messages and we're talking about how God says we can have a healthy, vibrant marriage. And we've talked about a lot of different topics. And this morning, I think it's important that we delve into this topic of how our finances impact our marriages. Now, a couple of disclaimers as we get started. Number one, this is one of those topics that there is so much I wish we had time to talk about this morning. We are going to just barely skim the surface. And so as we wrap up towards the end, I'm going to recommend some resources to you because I'm pretty confident there are people in this room today that could use some help with this in their marriages. And so I want to give you some resources that you can use. Secondly, I want you to know that I... Deal with this topic with a great deal of sensitivity because I realize that for many of you, your finances are an incredible stress right now because of our economic environment. However, I also realize that it doesn't matter what the deal is with our economics. The same principles always are true because they're God's principles. But please understand, I don't address this today to make you feel even more stressed out about your financial situation. I don't do it to heap any more guilt on you. Just to say these are God's principles and we need to apply them the best that we possibly can. Now I want you to also realize that this is not an issue about how much, about the amount of money. This is an issue about our attitude toward money. Why would I say that? Because it's what the Bible says. In fact, if you've got your Bible this morning, if you'll open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament of your Bible. Um, it's just after books like uh, Philippians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians. If you get to 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon and Hebrews, you've gone too far. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today, uh, we always encourage you. There are some Bibles out on the tables, and uh, you can feel free as you leave today to pick one of those up and take it home, make it your own, and bring it when you come back. And uh, we always encourage you to have your Bible, open it up, and study along with us. So here we go, First Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what God has to say about our attitude towards money. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, in the paragraph right before this, uh, Paul, who writes this letter, has been addressing an issue that was taking place in a, in a particular group of people. And he was saying to them, they, they had this struggle with, they thought if they were godly, if they lived like God, that that would somehow bring them financial gain. And so they had made their lifestyle, being godly, all about a pursuit of finances. And they had allowed finances to begin to control their lives. And Paul says that's not where it's found. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. Now this word contentment is the idea of um, an inner peace. 
an inner peace that is not in any way dependent on your circumstances or environment or what's happening around you. It is, it's like if you were inside your house and it's raining and lightning and thundering and the wind is blowing. You know what? When you're warm and cozy inside your house, it doesn't matter how much it's storming outside. You're, you're, you're secure. You're safe. There is peace inside even though the weather outside is bad. And Paul says here, that's the kind of contentment that we can have if we don't pursue the wrong things. That's what he says beginning then in verse 7. He says, for we brought nothing into the world, which we realize that, right? We didn't have anything attached to us when we came. And we can take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, realize food and clothing, that word for clothing is really the idea of covering and, and could actually even carry the idea of beyond clothing of shelter. Paul's saying if you have the, the three basic necessities, food, clothing, and shelter, then you ought to be content. We can be content with that. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. You know what, if we're totally honest with each other today, we would all have to admit that we can think in our own life or the life of somebody else how that has played out, right? Where, the, where they have gone, it's all been about the pursuit of money and finances and it's led to ruin and destruction. In fact, that word trap there is kind of the idea of an animal trap. Like you're walking through the woods and you get your foot caught in a trap and you, you can't get out of it. Or even the picture of, uh, you know, in Africa where they, they dig those uh, big pits and they put spears at the bottom sticking up and then cover it over and an animal unassumingly comes running along and falls into the trap. That's kind of the word picture. And if we're really honest with each other, we would admit that we can see how the pursuit of finances can lead to that kind of ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money. Now, sometimes we get this confused and we think it says for money, like money itself is bad. It's not. That's not what Paul's suggesting. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having some nice things. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know what? There are a lot of marriages that that's true, isn't it? Where the marriage has become so centered around possessions and finances that it has led right to many griefs. Verse 11 then is the opposite of this. Paul says, But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Paul's saying that our satisfaction, that real happiness, is not found in the pursuit of finances. But that real pleasure, real satisfaction, real happiness is found in a pursuit of God. It's living for God according to His model and according to what He says is valuable. In our marriage, it means living out our marriage the way God says to live it out. It's about making our spouse more important than we are. It's about responding to our spouse in the way that God would. It's about loving as God would love. It's about responding to imperfection with patience. Paul says if we'll pursue that, regardless of what our financial status is, we can have contentment. 
So this morning I want to suggest a few safeguards or steps that we can put into place to kind of make sure that we have our finances in the proper perspective and we don't allow Benjamin to control us or to control our marriages. Here's the first thing I want you to consider. Do you realize when you got married, a new company was formed? And the name of that company was You and Me, Inc. That's right. You and your spouse became one. Remember that verse in Genesis that we've been looking at several times throughout the series? Let me read it for you again. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. One flesh. And that means in every way, including the fact that we become one in our finances. It is no longer my money or your money. It's our money. It is no longer your debts or my debts. It is our debts. I think that's a pretty cool thing because when I got married, my wife had no debt, but I did. And uh, for the first few years of our married life, she helped me erase some uh, credit card debt that I had accumulated. I, uh, when I was out of, right out of college, I was a youth pastor. You know, they make no money. And uh, just ask Brad. And... Uh, so I used my credit card a lot to just do things like fly home to see my parents and stuff like that. And so I accumulated. It wasn't a ton. It was four or five thousand dollars. And in today's perspective, that's not nearly what a lot of people carry. But it was really nice because it wasn't just my debt anymore. It became our debt. Now I say all that to just make the point that it's no longer you and me separate. It becomes you and me together, including our finances. Now a second thing we need to realize about this is that as we try to combine this you and me ink together, there are going to be some struggles because there are just some inherent differences quite likely among us that make living in that environment, trying to really be one in our finances, a little difficult. Let me point out some of those. One of those is just the fact that men and women are different. We've hinted at that along the way several times and just the differences in men and women cause us to see our finances a bit differently. Uh, by the way, Dan sent me an email. Dan Jeffrey sent me an email this week of some additional differences between men and women. Let me share these with you. I think you will identify. Um, if Laura, Kate, and Sarah go out for lunch, they will call each other Laura, Kate, and Sarah. If Mike, David, and John go out, they will affectionately refer to each other as Fat Boy, Godzilla, and Four Eyes. It's true, isn't it? When the bill arrives... Mike, Dave, and John will each throw in 20, even though it's only 3250. None of them will ask for anything, none of them will have anything smaller, and none will actually admit that they want any change back. When the girls get their bill, out come the pocket calculators. It's true. A man will pay $2 for a $1 item that he needs. A woman will pay $1 for a $2 item that she doesn't need, but it's on sale. That's true, isn't it? Here's another issue that causes us to struggle with our finance is a difference in personality and temperament. Now, when I say this in regards to money, I'm not talking about melancholy and chloric and, and uh, sanguine. When it comes to money, there are two personality types. There are spenders and there are savers, right? 
And it's funny, but God seems to put one of those in almost every marriage, doesn't He? A spender and a saver. Now, savers are happy laying money away. They figure it's always better to put it away for a rainy day. They're the ones who are always cutting out coupons and it's okay to buy the generic brand and they know exactly what everything costs. And the more money they have in the bank, the happier they are. And then there are the spenders. And for them, money flows freely. They figure there will always be more of it somewhere, someday. And they kind of look at it like as long as there are checks in the checkbook, there must be money in the bank account. Here's another thing that causes us sometimes to not be on the same page about finances. It's the fact that money is personal. It's true. You know, when you were growing up as a child, didn't your parents teach you that it's rude to ask somebody how much something costs or to refer in any way to how much money they might make? And while that is true that it might be rude as a child, we seem to carry that kind of mental picture over into the marriage relationship and we have this at least subconscious idea that it's very personal to talk about money. And sometimes even with our spouse, we think, well, that, that's just too personal to really delve deeply into our finances. Another issue is simply our financial ignorance. I mean, let's just be honest. Some of us really, we're kind of clueless about money management and, and personal finances. And so because we're kind of clueless about that, we, we don't like to admit that to our spouse. And so we just sort of stay away from the subject because we feel ignorant about it. Another issue that we often deal with is family history. You grew up in a home watching your parents deal with money in a certain way. And one of two things happened as you watched your parents. As you watched them, you thought, well, that's exactly how it's supposed to be done. Everybody probably does it that way. That's exactly how I'm going to do it. Or you watch them and thought, that is terrible. There is no way I am ever going to handle my money that way. I'm going to do it my way. But you came into your marriage relationship with some kind of family history about money. And guess what? Your spouse did too. And often their family history is different from your family history. And you are operating on completely different pages. And we don't talk about that very often. The last one is a sense of entitlement. I heard about this lady was walking down the street one day and she was accosted by a homeless woman. The homeless woman said to her, things are terrible, could you just give me $10? And actually the lady reached into her wallet and was about to give her $10, but she stopped and she said, let me ask you a question. Are you going to spend this money on wine? The homeless lady said, no, I gave up drinking years ago. I promise you I won't spend it on wine. The lady said, are you going to take this and go shopping for frivolous things? And she said, no, really, look at me. I am not going to spend it on frivolous things. I'm going to buy something to eat. The lady said one more time, you're not going to take this $10 and use it to get your hair done, are you? The, lady said, the homeless lady said, look at me. Does it look like I've ever had my hair done in the last 20 years? No way will I spend it on that. The lady said, I'm not going to give you the $10. She said, I'm going to take you to dinner tonight with my husband. And the homeless lady said, well, won't that aggravate him? He's not going to want to go to dinner with somebody like me. To which the woman responded, I don't really care, but I want him to see what a woman looks like and smells like that gives up wine, shopping, and what was the other thing? Uh, <laughs> and, and having your hair done, okay? It gives up hair appointments, wine, and shopping. Well, it was really funny if I told it right. Sorry. Actually, maybe it was funnier that way. I don't know. We have this sense of entitlement that says that I, I'm owed everything. You know, that I ought to have everything right now that my parents accumulated over their span of their lifetime. 
said, I ought to be able to keep up with my neighbors and have everything nice that my neighbors have. And we probably have varying degrees of this sense of entitlement or different things that we think that we're entitled to that create some conflict in our marriage. So how do we deal with those differences? Well, here's the first thing I want to suggest to you this morning that needs to happen. We need to learn to communicate about our finances. In this You and Me Incorporated company that's formed, there needs to be open communication about our finances. There needs to be nothing that is secret. All of the financial decisions need to be made together. There needs to be communication about our goals financially. What, what do we want to accomplish? Where do we want to be 20 years from now financially? There need to be conversations about how we spend our money. There need to be conversations about what was our family history? You know, what's our, each of our backgrounds? How do we view finances because of how we grew up? Do we think some of these things are really personal? Are they difficult for us to talk about? And that kind of conversation needs to happen. Isn't it interesting that the idea of communication keeps coming up in every one of the topics that we hit on? When we talk about dealing with conflict and tension in our marriage, we said a big part of that is learning to communicate. When we talked last week about the sexual part of our relationship, we said communication is a big part of making that healthy in our relationship. And when we talk about money, it's a huge step in dealing with this in a healthy way. Now, that conversation needs to take place at the right time with the right attitude. It is not a conversation that is set up so that you can argue with each other. It's a conversation where you're both just sharing your thoughts and your feelings with your guard down, not trying to fire back, but just openly discussing how we see this. You know what a part of that conversation ought to include? It ought to include you agreeing that neither one of you will ever make a major purchase without first discussing it with your spouse. And you need to define what is the dollar amount that identifies a major purchase. What do we see that as? Another thing, uh, and I've never even thought of this concept much until I was reading about it this week, and then I thought, you know, people do do that. You ought to have in that conversation agreement that neither one of you will ever launder money. Now, here's what I mean by that when it comes to your marriage relationship. Women sometimes, I shouldn't stereotype, sometimes a husband or a wife will launder money by, you know when you go to the grocery store and you use your debit card and they always say to you, or you say to them, Could, can I have an extra $25 back? You know, and you slide that through. There are couples, believe it or not, where the wife acts like the groceries cost that total amount. She pockets that 25 and spends it on what she wants to spend it on. Guys, I think we sometimes might do this. Well, you know, you go out to lunch with a bunch of guys and one of you says, hey, I'll use my credit card to pay for this. And everybody else gives you cash. Well, you fail to have to mention that to your spouse, that you've got cash and you pocket that and you spend it on what you want to spend it on. Now, is that wrong in and of itself? Not necessarily. But it's those kinds of things when we're trying to be deceitful a little bit, not willing to really talk about how we're spending our money, that it grows dangerous in our relationship. The second thing I want to suggest to you this morning is that you need to create a spending plan as a couple. Now, maybe you immediately say, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Let me ask you this. If I had a hammer today, and uh, while you guys were still in here, I went out to every one of your cars and busted in the gas gauge and then said to you, why don't you just drive like that for a year? You, you wouldn't like that very well, would it? That would be very uncomfortable because you'd never know for sure how much gas was left in the tank. And I guarantee you'd run out of gas a few times over the next year and you'd be so 
frustrated when it happened because there was no way for you to gauge how much gas was there. Why is it that we think we can just go around spending money and spending money and spending money and never have a plan or a gauge for how we're doing? It's really flying blind, isn't it? It really doesn't make very much sense when you think about it in that context. And so I want to encourage you as a couple, you ought to sit down and create a spending plan. Now, here's the first step to creating your spending plan. Pray. Ever thought that? That's the first thing you ought to do. You ought to ask God, God, how do you want us to spend our money? God, where do you want us to place some limits? God, where do you want us to be really generous? But God, how do you want us to spend our money? The second step then is that you ought to begin to sort of build your spending plan around three words. Give, give, and live. The first give is that you ought to give to God. You ought to give 10% to God. Now, that's not my idea. You know, I didn't just think of that this week and think, boy, that'd be a nice thing if they do that. You know what? It's all throughout the Bible. Time and time and time again, God endorses this idea, encourages this idea, commands this idea that we ought to give back to Him. In fact, it says this in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Honor the Lord by giving Him the first part of all of your income. Now, why do this? Let me give you some simple reasons. Even beyond the fact that we ought to just do it because God said to. And because it would be healthy for our relationship with Him and healthy for our marriage relationship. But you know what giving to Him does? For one thing, it is a reminder that God is the one who created me and He is the one who has given me everything that I have. It is true. Everything that I have in one way or another, has come from Him. It is also a regular reminder that daily I am in need of God in my life. I need His grace. I need His mercy. I need His power at work in my life. And it is an incredible way when we give that we get to join God in making an eternal difference in the lives of people. My wife Peg and I have been giving to God since day one of our marriage. We have given to Him 10% or more throughout our married life. And there have been some times, maybe like some of you are living through right now, where our finances were really, really tight. I mean, so tight that we, on paper, didn't know how each month we would pay our bills. But I want to tell you this morning from my own testimony of my own life, that because we have been consistently honoring Him first, I absolutely believe God has always been the one who was taking care of us. Because we have always had those basic essentials that God promised us. We have always had food on the table, a roof over our heads, and clothes on our back. And God has faithfully taken care of us because I believe we honored His plan for spending and we gave first to Him. Now the second give is give to yourself 10%. The Bible says this uh, in Proverbs chapter 13, He who gathers money little by little makes it grow. And I think the Bible teaches this idea that we ought to be setting money aside. We ought to be saving some money. I, uh, we have a pool at our house and a pool deck that's uh, all pavers. And so there's lots of sand in between them. And every year about this time, we get the attack of the ants. And it doesn't matter how often I go out there and sweep those things away or spray. I mean, they just come every year and they build these incredibly big mounds of sand. I mean, it's amazing the power of these ants. 
um, as fast as I can sweep them away, you know, and spray them, they're building another one. Have you ever watched them, though? Just the incredible work ethic that they have and their ability to move dirt, just these little bitty ants. You know, the Bible talks about the power of the ants. Listen to what it says in Proverbs chapter 6. It says, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. He was talking to us there. Learn from their ways and be wise. Even though they have no prince, governor, or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering for the winter. You know what the picture is there? These ants work hard. But they are always setting aside a little bit of what they're doing for times when gathering isn't so easy. They are always saving a little bit for when times get more difficult. And you know, quite honestly... Some of you have experienced that, haven't you? And some of you who set money aside when things were good have been fortunate enough to be able to live off of some of that money when things weren't so good. And as things maybe improve in our lives, we need to live out this principle of giving to God and then secondly, we giving to ourselves and saving so that we are prepared when difficult times come along. And then the third kind of foundation of this plan is live. Live on the remaining 80%. Now, this is the part where I wish we had more time today to really delve in and talk in great detail about some of these things. But let me just hit a couple of high points and then give you some resources. If we're going to live on 80%, that means working a lot harder at making what we spend match up with our income, doesn't it? And for a lot of us, the greatest enemy that we have in this department is credit. We buy things on credit that we really can't afford. And if you really want to get your finances in order and live them and, and manage them the way that God would instruct us, you need to stop living that way. And you need to live simply on what your income is as much as possible. We have rung up millions of dollars in consumer debt in America, and it is crippling us. We are paying for that today. You ought to live on the principle that if you have a credit card and you use that credit card throughout the month, whatever you buy on it, you ought to pay it off at the end of the month. And if you can't live under that discipline, then the wisest thing you could do would be to cut that card up, shred it when you get home today, and eliminate that debt. We uh, talked about this about a year ago, if you remember. In fact, uh, I'm going to tell you about a resource in a minute. But we talked about this a year ago and we studied it one Sunday in great depth what the Bible has to say about the dangers of credit. And a lot of us were very convicted by that, including my wife and I. And we began trying to rapidly eliminate debt. And uh, hopefully you've made progress in that at our house. Uh, we have about three or four more payments uh, on a uh, car loan. And then we will be completely out of consumer debt. And we are so excited about that. We will just have our mortgage payment um, because we've worked hard at trying to eliminate it. And that's going to set us free financially. So let me give you a couple of resources. Um, in your weekly update, in that little box on the right-hand side where hopefully maybe you take some sermon notes once in a while, um, there are three resources, three books. I highly recommend any of the three of these books. If you're struggling with, you know, if I'm going to live on the 80%, you've got to have a, a plan for spending. Maybe you need some advice on some other financial things. All three of those books are filled with good stuff. And there's no way we can cover it all here today. But some of you, you need to make this investment in your marriage. Because until you get this part of your marriage right, you're going to continue to struggle and have problems. It would be worth the investment to buy one of these books and read it together. Another resource I want to recommend to you is 
the, the sermons that we did a year ago called the ABCs of Financial Success. Um, those are still uh, downloadable on our website uh, at crosspointcape.com and they're also uh, downloadable on our podcast at iTunes. And so you can go download those, listen to those together. And a lot of the stuff that I'd love to be able to talk about today was contained in all those messages where we've worked through this whole concept of how would we live on the 80%. I want to encourage you to go and read those resources. Let me wrap up then by reading again this passage of Scripture. And I want you to hear this again fresh, but I want you to think about it in terms of your marriage and what Paul says here. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Don't let Benjamin take your marriage there. Let's get our finances under control by doing it God's way and gaining control of Benjamin in our marriage relationships. Let's pray together. God, would you help us in this very critical part of our relationships? God, there is so much more we really ought to dive into and so much more that is contained in the Bible about this area. But God, I pray even just these few basic things would take root in our hearts and we'd really begin to have the honest conversation that needs to take place with our spouses. And God, for those marriages in this room that are struggling with this very issue, would you begin today through the power of your Word and your Spirit to bring healing and a future plan for their finances. Thank you, God, for what I know you'll do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.